0: Christian churches are always in danger. Read through the New Testament epistles. They're constantly warning about and against dangers which threaten the church sin abounds, Satan is active, pride, ambition, self interest. Personal preferences all too easily dominate hearts and minds. False doctrine, false teachers lurk around every corner. Every church is in danger. Some of you might think I'm exaggerating or being ridiculous. Some might think, well, being unnecessarily alarmist. But go back, read the letters of Paul and John and Peter and James and Jude. Danger faces every church. And the dangers facing churches come from two sources they come from without, and they come from within. They come from inside the church and they come from outside the church. Let me ask you a question. Where does the greater danger lie? From outside the church or from inside the church? What do you reckon? Inside. Inside the church. Talk to any Christian who's been through a time of trouble or turmoil or maybe even division in their church and ask them, was the cause of that turmoil from outside or was it from within? 99 times out of 100, the answer will be from within. We were the problem. Now Paul is going to address these two types of danger. From verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1, he's going to talk about how we must respond to threats from outside the church. And he'll take four verses to do that. And then when we get to chapter 2 from verse 1, he's going to talk about how we protect ourselves from dangers which lurk within the church. God willing, that's what we'll consider next week. So firstly, Paul's going to talk about how we must respond when dangers lurk outside the church. He talks about your adversaries. He's talking as one who is under arrest and in chains because of those dangers which have come from outside as a gospel preacher. Today, we have many adversaries outside of the church. It seems that In every area of authority, from every source of social media, and in all areas of public life, the whole world is taking up opinions and attitudes and lifestyles which are contrary to the gospel and contrary to the word of God. What are we to do about it? How should the church respond? How should Christians respond? Well, Paul gives us three answers. First of all, at verse 27, he says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself. Conduct yourself. When danger threatens... Keep on living like a Christian ought to live, says Paul. (laughs) Philippi, you may may remember from our introduction to this letter, Philippi was a Roman colony in Greece. And many of its citizens had Roman citizenship. Uh, And so Roman was Philippi, it was actually known as Little Rome. As you entered Philippi, it was like Stepping out of Greece and into Italy. If you've ever visited uh, Port Merion in Wales, you get a similar experience. As you walk out of Wales and all of a sudden you're in the Mediterranean. If you've ever, ever been and visited that little village. There's been much talk in recent years in the UK, hasn't there, about Immigrants not becoming integrated into UK culture and society, but rather they live isolated in their own communities. And it's almost like walking, some say, uh, out of Britain and, and being British, however you want to define that. And all of a sudden it's almost like being in a foreign country, some say. Now Paul says that the first priority, whenever dangers threaten from outside the church the first priority is to always make sure that you keep on living a certain type of life in a certain type of way. Christians and communities of Christians are to be like a little Rome in Greece. They're to be like a Port Merion in Wales. To be distinctive by living lives which consistently reflect the gospel of Christ. Before you even begin to think about what you might say, you're to think about how you are living. Your conduct, says Paul, your conduct. Now, you can't always be speaking, but you're always living. You don't always have an opportunity to speak, but you're constantly being observed. Your conduct, says Paul, your conduct. Let your conduct be worthy. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? Conduct that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, the gospel begins with God himself. The God of the Bible. The gospel begins with the fact that God is holy and pure and that God is without sin. Your life therefore cannot be one of unholiness or impurity or sinfulness let your conduct be worthy of the gospel now of course you will not you will you will not ever be as God is when it comes to holiness and purity and sinlessness but your lives must nevertheless nevertheless reflect that great change that God has produced in you that turning around that has occurred within you. That new direction in which you are now walking, if you are a Christian, that ought to be evidence to all. This God is angry with sin, we read in the Bible, and angry against sinners who remain in their sin. And so as Christians, we need to have a strong and consistent resolve to do away with any sin in my life, any sin in your life. Because we know what God's attitude to sin is. And for these things we strive, says Paul. That's the word he uses at the end of verse 27. Strive to do it. Now the Greek word that Paul uses is the one from which we get our word, athlete, training and straining every muscle and sinew to live a life free from sin, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, we need to say something about this because it's a bit like the words we read in that hymn fight the good fight the hymn has these words fight the good fight with all your might but the very next line Christ is your strength and Christ your right Only believe and you will see that Christ is all in all to thee. You see, this striving that Paul talks about here, that we need to remember something important. Striving after such things as the gospel requires in the life of a Christian is something that a mere mortal man or woman is not capable of. In and of yourself, you cannot strive to live a life that's worthy of the gospel because it's unattainable. You can't do it. Well, why then does Paul exhort me to do something I cannot do? That's a good question. Well, here's the answer. Let me remind you that Paul is addressing this exhortation to those who, back in verse 1, he calls saints in Christ, the people who he is exhorting to strive are those who are in Christ. Paul is addressing this exhortation to those who, back in verse 6, Paul says, God has begun a good work in you and will complete it. The people who are being exhorted to strive are those in whom God is at work And Paul is addressing this exhortation to those who are, back in verse 11, filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus. It's not that they produced it themselves. It's Christ producing this life within them. So you see, this striving which Paul exhorts us to is brought about by the good work that God is doing in you. This striving that Paul is talking about is the result of that good work that God is doing in you. And this striving is done in Christ. More than that, this striving is Christ himself in you. So if you're not in Christ You cannot strive. This striving that Paul is talking about here is a unique activity known only to Christians. It's only something that a Christian can consider. It's only something that a Christian can do. Because it's only someone who's in Christ that can strive like this. From him comes the desire. In him is the life and strength that we need to be able to do it. This is us in union with Christ, living out the gospel life. It can only be done in the power of God by those who are in Christ and in whom Christ lives. But you are to strive. So to take up this exhortation is to confess your great weakness to confess your need of God's help, to lean upon Christ, to submit yourself again and again to Christ, trusting and believing that as you give yourself to this striving and as you give yourself to Christ, he will supply that which you need and he will do his work in you and through you. Well, let's carry on thinking about this God of the gospel that our conduct might be worthy of. Now, whilst God is angry against sin and sinners, he also shows, of course, he is slow to anger. And he's gracious. And he's merciful. And he abounds in loving kindness. And he's full of compassion. And he's ready to forgive. So if your conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ, then that must must describe your conduct too. And it's the gospel of Christ that our conduct is to be worthy of. Even in the face of severe opposition. Even when faced with all the dangers that come from outside. This God-man who came not to be served, but to serve who was so full of love that he died for sinners in their place, giving himself, let your conduct be a reflection of this God and this saviour and this gospel, says Paul. When people are in your presence, they should feel like they've just walked out of Greece and into little Rome. Except it's not Greece. It's this dark and sinful world in which they live. And it's not little Rome. It actually is a little bit of heaven. When people are in the presence of a believer, when people are in the presence of one in whom Christ dwells, there should be something about us that makes them feel like they've walked out of this dark world and experienced just a little bit of heaven. In the kingdom of darkness in which they live, which is all they've ever known and which is all they usually see, they come across a window through which they might see the kingdom of light. And you in your conduct are that window. At home, in the street where you live, at work, at school, at uni, at the shops, in your tax return. In your expenses claims, in your leisure activities, while you're on holiday, in what you spend your money on, even in the way you drive your car, as this world rages against God and his church and his word, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the first way a Christian responds when danger comes from outside. The second thing is the second half of verse 27. Stand fast. Stand fast. In one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith. Something that fascinates me is the way in which Christians sometimes ask questions like, where are we going as a church? Or, as a church, are we moving forward? Now, I think I understand the sentiment which lies behind those questions. But it fascinates me because in contrast to that, Paul actually often urges us to stand still. Stand still. Because that's what stand fast means. As she says, Paul, don't go anywhere. Stay right where you are. Now, why would he say that? The Roman army had a military strategy used by their foot soldiers. Some of you will have seen it depicted perhaps in films. They held large, curved shields in front of them. They were about three foot, a meter high. They were about 40 centimeters wide, large enough for a soldier to be able to crouch down behind, and they were completely protected from the front. And so the front line of soldiers would stand shoulder to shoulder and they'd crouch down behind their shields which formed a solid wall in front of them. The second row of soldiers would come in behind them and they'd hold their shields over their heads but not just their heads, the head of the guy in front of them. And so they had a solid roof over their heads as well. And sometimes the front line would have spears jutting through. And they just stood there. They didn't move. And the enemy came. And tried to batter them. And they just stood there. An immovable object. The enemy couldn't penetrate. The enemy couldn't move them back. They just held their ground. They just stayed. (coughs) Stand fast. Hold your ground. That's what they did. And the enemy couldn't defeat them. It was a technique, actually, which had been perfected by Alexander the Great. That's what made his army so successful. And interestingly, he'd learned it from his father. If you remember back, his father's name was Philip, after whom Philippi had been named. Stand fast. Don't you go anywhere as a church. You stay right where you are. In Christ Christ in the faith, one mind, one heart, one spirit. We're to stand fast in one spirit. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's talking about a oneness of heart and soul that we all share as Christians. And with one mind, a gospel mind, with the gospel in mind, we all think and we all think the same. We all feel the same. We all share this same deep-seated resolve. That's what he's talking about. We all have this one overriding priority in our lives. We all have this overriding ambition and goal in our lives, which is the honour and glory of Christ and the furtherance of his gospel, and stand fast. We're all equally convinced, and we stand together as believers, shoulder to shoulder, as it were, unmoved by the danger For the cause of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. Stand fast. Don't you go anywhere. You stay right where you are in Christ. And we stand resolved then, you see, to maintain the faith. To maintain the truth of the gospel. That faith once delivered for all the church. That pattern of sound words taught by the apostles, that foundation which has been laid by the prophets and the apostles, the truth of the scriptures, the word of God, you stand fast in it, says Paul. Now as we do so, and we know about this today, the world scoffs and sneers and laughs. It rants against us. It pours out its scorn against us. It promotes and applauds same-sex relationships, same-sex marriages, abortion, transgender issues and all the rest. Even in the news this weekend, doctors saying in 10 years' time, transgender men will be able to have a womb implant so that they can have a baby. How perverse is that? What does Paul say the church must do? Stand fast. Hold your ground. Do not move. And we're to do it together. And therein lies the great tragedy that's befallen the wider Christian community. Because we're no longer together, are we? Some churches, even whole denominations, are no longer standing fast. As a result, the world thinks it's winning. The world now is convinced that it is right, that it has got the upper hand and that eventually it will snuff out all of this opposition from religious people. Well thankfully the word of God assures us that the world is mistaken and that they only have an appearance of victory. We know that Christ is reigning and that's why we stand fast in him. We know that Christ ultimately will be vindicated and that's why we stand fast in him. And one of the lessons we can learn from the Bible is that God often waits until it seems that his people are doomed and then he bears his mighty arm. One of the lessons we learn in the Bible is that sometimes it's just when evil seems to have reached its zenith, then God moves in mighty power and reveals his glory. And we also learn in the Bible that God always has his true people. He never leaves himself without witness in the world. You are that witness. Stand fast. One spirit. In one mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. For the truth of the word stand fast and finally don't be afraid don't be afraid not in any way terrified by your enemies don't be afraid you've no need to be afraid There are those who are against you for no other reason than that you are a Christian. There are those who are against us for no other reason than that we are a Christian (coughs) church. But you and we have nothing to fear. There are those who are against us for all kinds of reasons. There's nothing to be frightened about. We're on the Lord's side. Now some Christians... Some churches decide that the way to deal with those who are against them is to become like them. And now that they and the world are the same, the world accepts them. Well, of course it does. And those Christians and those churches convince themselves that this is good because we're all living peaceably together. Paul says, the way to deal with those who are against you is to stand firm and not be afraid because there is nothing to fear. This is written by the man, remember, who's in chains for the gospel. A life lived worthy of the gospel presents unbelievers with a life of holiness, a life of integrity a life of love and forgiveness and compassion and truthfulness and mercy and grace. That's what they will be confronted by, by you, if your life is one of gospel life. And whilst they may be completely unable to reconcile the doctrine which you love and the truths that we teach and obey, what they cannot argue with are the qualities of character that they see in your life. And your life convicts them of their own sin and guilt. That's what the phrase, a proof of their perdition, means. The NIV puts it like this. Your life will be to them like a sign that they will be destroyed because it makes clear to them their own sinfulness... And at the same time, you will be assured that you are saved. Because only a Christian can live like this. Only one in whom Christ dwells can live like this. Only one who has the power of God working within them can live like this. And you will not fear, even though you will suffer. Verse 29. You will suffer. It has been granted to you, says Paul. It is part of the package that goes with being a Christian. That on behalf of Christ, says Paul, you won't just believe in him, you will suffer for him. It's been granted to you. Suffering is not a Christian life that's gone wrong. Suffering is not the result of things not going how God planned. Suffering is not something that you could have avoided if you'd been a better kind of Christian. Do you remember what we read not so long ago in our studies in 1 Peter? (laughs) Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called what will we call to, Peter? To suffer for Christ. Because, he says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. When Christians suffer for no other reason than that their conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ, we don't throw up our hands in horror As if it's somehow all gone terribly wrong and that this awful thing should never be happening to one of the Lord's people. (coughs) To this you were called, says Peter. To you it has been granted to suffer, says Paul. Just as you've witnessed my suffering, says the man with chains around his wrists and ankles. If you find yourself saying under your breath, but that's not the Christianity I signed up for, let me ask you a question. Who exactly is the Christ you think you're following? Because Paul will say in verse 5 of chapter 2, which we'll come on to next week, let this mind be in you. Which also was in Christ Jesus, the one who humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Do you think you deserve better than he received? You face many dangers from the world in which you live. This is true. How does the Christian respond? Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand fast. Strive together for the faith. Do not in any way be terrified. Because in all of these things, you will be assured that your salvation is of God.